From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They've fled dire conditions in Venezuela and come to Colorado, but they aren't allowed to work. A lot of people are on the street, as you can see that. Right now, they're in the tents. Every state, you see New York, Chicago, Denver, we're having a crisis. People are on the street. They don't have work permits. Well, now thousands of recent arrivals can apply for temporary status, which would mean they could get a job. Meet two Venezuelan Americans who are marshalling all the resources they can to help with applications, education, and therapy for trauma. We're not just talking about sexual abuse. We're talking about kidnapping, human trafficking, so many things. Plus how Coloradans can help. And understanding climate threats in Colorado and how to meet them with help from a new federal assessment. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After crossing the southern U.S. border, tens of thousands of people have come to Colorado in the past year. They're often fleeing war, economic strife, and a lack of human rights. But here, they also struggle. Dozens of kids were living outside with their families on one block in Denver this month. 80 people from Venezuela sheltered under a bridge in Carbondale. Well, there's a new opportunity for some of these folks to work legally, key to building a better life. First, to Aurora, where CPR's Rachel Estabrook reports nonprofits are stretched thin as bigger cities get more attention. As you can see right now, people can come in. They choose exactly what they actually eat. So we're It's not- a Wednesday morning in September at a food bank near Colfax Avenue in Aurora. Amanda Blaurock shows several round tables with tortillas, rice, produce that refugees grow locally, and meat prepared in culturally appropriate ways. Demand here at the Village Exchange Center is growing. So we have people starting between 7 and 9 a.m. who will sit outside, and at 12 o'clock they could then come in and go through the kind of process to get food. Blaurock estimates they're serving hundreds of new people, and lots of them are children. That's three times as many people as just a few months ago. It includes Josleanes Montoya, Luis Rincon, and eight-year-old Esteban Jose, who arrived in Aurora from Venezuela recently. They traveled for about a month, and they saw dead people as they went through the jungle. They say it's not something they'd wish on anyone, and that they heard what it would be like, but it wasn't the same as living it. Like millions of Venezuelans, they left home to get away from extreme economic depression, which has been made worse by U.S. sanctions. They didn't even have a specific destination in mind. During the trek, they researched for a place to go. Looking online and talking to other people who were migrating, they heard Aurora would be welcoming. The Village Exchange Center is one reason why. We have 
people who come in and just like lay down inside because they have an opportunity just to be in a safe space. Aurora has long been a destination for people from a variety of countries to get their start in the U.S. Nonprofit leaders say what's different in the past year is the sheer number of people arriving from the border. Groups like Blaurocks have stepped in. They formed the Migrant Response Network in Aurora, led by Mateos Alvarez. We haven't gotten as much attention, even though we're receiving very large numbers of migrants. There are no official statistics, but he estimates more than 7,000 people have come to Aurora. There's this perception that most of them arrive and stay in Denver, and that's not the case. Yes, they arrive to Denver, but many of them make their way to Northwest Aurora because there's a large community that speaks the same language, that is of the same culture. Alvarez also runs the Aurora Economic Opportunity Coalition and the Day Labor Center. It was one day driving into his office in October 2022 when he saw a huge change. Both sides of Dayton Street in front of our Day Labor Center was just saturated with people with new faces, I mean, it was hundreds of new faces. For years, people who needed it had generally been able to find work at the day labor center, he said. Not anymore. Immediately, literally in one day, we had more workers than we did work. And we've had that issue ever since. That was just the first wave of people. The next day, there was another wave. There was more new faces. The next day, there was more new faces. And that's where I started to panic and feel overwhelmed. Nearly a year later, people are still coming. On a Monday this October, two men are here at the Day Labor Center for the first time. Luis and Douglas Colmenares Guevara are brothers. They have a court date to pursue a legal path to stay in the U.S., but it's months in the future, and in the immediate term, they want to work. Whoever God brings to the street, whatever work they can give us will do, Luis says. They're staying with a nephew in the area, and they hope to bring their wives and children. Venezuelans are not the only ones coming. On this Monday at the Day Labor Center, a half dozen men sit around a picnic table. They're speaking Pular, a language from northwest Africa. They're among the thousands of people who have left Mauritania, where some black residents are still enslaved, and come to the U.S., Starting in April, some of them made their way to this corner of Aurora. They say things have been difficult since they arrived. Dauda Dekite says he comes to the day labor center six days a week, 15 hours a day, and he only gets work a few times a month. The nonprofits are doing whatever they can to help in terms of food, work, legal services to navigate the immigration system, and more. But leaders like Alvarez and Blaurock worry it won't be enough. The state and federal governments are not coordinating the response. And unlike in Denver, no local government is either. They're right on the border of two counties, Arapaho and Adams. Neither of them, nor the state, nor the city of Aurora, would discuss the migrant situation with CPR News. Getting the officials on the Arapaho, Adams, and Aurora side to say, yes, this is now an Aurora problem and an Adams County and an Arapaho County problem is kind of a step in and of itself. Blaurock wants Aurora's mayor and city council to acknowledge the depth of need presented by people arriving so they can raise more funds for services. Cities like Denver, New York, Miami, and along the border in Texas are getting funds from FEMA, 
But FEMA has not provided direct aid to Aurora and the nonprofits there. So now the nonprofits are asking Colorado's U.S. Senators and Congressman Jason Crow, who represents the area, to advocate for them in Washington. Alvarez says he understands some people will want to focus on border security instead of figuring out how to help. And yet... These large number of migrants are standing outside our building. We don't feel that by doing nothing helps the situation. We got to get folks to follow up with their court cases and find a legal pathway forward when it comes to work. And that's what we're trying to support. He says in his seven years running the Economic Opportunity Coalition, he's seen what can happen when people are left standing around waiting for work. It leads to desperation. That's been my, what I've observed, that can move people to make choices that they don't want to make. Northwest Aurora is already an economically depressed corner of Colorado with existing public health and safety issues. The nonprofit leaders are trying to warn local governments that the risk increases if the community neglects people's basic needs. They say ignoring them won't dissuade others from coming. A year into this monstrous organizing effort, Alvarez's panic has subsided. But he's still stressed. There are more than 30 nonprofits working together in the Migrant Response Network. He says already some of the small ones have thought about closing their doors, overwhelmed by the need. Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. Well, there is a new opportunity for some Venezuelans arriving here. If they arrived in the first half of this year, the federal government will let them apply for temporary legal status. But just being eligible doesn't mean it'll be easy, say our next two guests, Maria Elena Suarez, who leads Organización Papagayo, and Yole Casas, who heads Vive Wellness. Welcome to both. Thank you so Thank much. You. Great to have So I want to talk specifically about the conditions in Venezuela. I'm going to read from the federal description. This is the federal government's reasoning for offering temporary legal status. They say Venezuela, quote, is suffering one of the worst humanitarian crises in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Poverty, food insecurity, malnutrition, and infant mortality are all very high. There are frequent electrical outages, and the healthcare infrastructure has collapsed. Add to that heavy rains and flooding this summer. Yoli, when people arrive in Colorado, what signs do you see of what they have endured? Well, lots of trauma. You know, I mean, the families come in and the children just come with a lot of stories about when they walked for three to four months, where they've gone through, you know, the jungle, Panama. I mean, they name all the countries that walk through, but also that being tired being chased, being robbed, even worse that no child or people should see. So it's been really hard. What does that trauma look like for the folks that you work with, Maria Elena? I think as a humans, this is a big lesson because we get to discover what is not being told, not necessarily just the abuse that happens among humans, but uh, there is human trafficking and so many other things that are not spoken about. And thanks to the opportunity like you brought to us and many other medias, you know, uh, we're being able to be the voices for those that are not able to speak for themselves. 
I think it is time for humanity to come together with compassion and awareness of what's going on and do something for those that are not able to do it for themselves. Mm. Well, why don't we explain temporary protected status? So people who came from Venezuela and arrived in the U.S. by this past July will be eligible. The federal government estimates that will be around half a million people nationwide And it gives them a reprieve from deportation and, this is important, allows them to work legally. Why is TPS important to the people you've been serving, Yoli? Well, simply, you know, when they come through the border, they've been allowed to come in. They get all the, they keep off some of their passports. They give them an A number. They come through. They say come in and their appointment is two years from now. What are you supposed to do? Two years from now, it's like, come in, your appointment is, I don't know, in Denver, 2025. So it's, you know, one of the things that are important is you're supposed to be taking care of your family. You got to get jobs. How are you surviving? So this TPS is an amazing thing to give them temporarily work permit protection. So meanwhile, they can take care of themselves. They can get housing. They can get food until their appointments comes. I mean, it does make me wonder, without TPS, what do they do for two years? Well, a lot of people are on the street, as you can see that. Right now, they're in the tents. Dem- every every state, do you see New York, Chicago, Denver, we're having a crisis. People are on the street. They can't ha- find work. They don't have work permits. You were nodding there, Maria Elena. It is important to be aware of what this actually means. We're talking about a temporary protection status. This is not a permanent solution. And if we we want to be realistic, we're not able to meet everybody's needs. Uh, We are only able to help those Venezuelans that arrive to the United States before July 31st. But we not necessarily just work with Venezuelans. We have people that come from different countries. We have Colombia, Peru, Chile. Afghanistan. We have Afghanistan, people from Africa. So at this point, we have a big need that... Not necessarily we have a solution for. And if you want to us to be honest, this creates a bigger crisis. Mm-hmm. So the question comes down to how we're going to move forward, how we're going to be able to provide a solution for those families so they can become independent from a system and they're able to sustain themselves. And so it's important context you've provided there while we are speaking about a kind of narrow application of TPS for one community and not even, you know, everyone in that community, but those who have arrived in a certain window, this is part of a much larger picture of migration from many different countries. Mm -hmm. And you you all have been helping in a number of ways. Uh, Schooling, for instance, with your organization, Yoli, you've been helping folks find housing, childcare, sometimes things as basic as finding cell phones. Mm -hmm. That might be as well transportation to another city where folks may have stronger ties. When this new opportunity, temporary protected status, got announced in September, did you notice a sense of relief or excitement among the people you've been working with at at, at just the possibility? Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was like, personally, it was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Uh, for the people that were that we have met since December and January was 
there is a possibility, there is a way that we can help you and you can take care of yourself and your family before your appointment comes. Uh, there was also, personally for me, was like, wait a minute, why didn't you do it until the end of September of October if you're allowing people in? Because a lot of people are going to be left out. You had hoped that this would apply to more people. Absolutely. Oh, yes, longer time. Like, in, why, why July? Why couldn't it be September, October? At that time that they made that decision. Mm-hmm. But right now we're excited about the possibility. We're ready to go. And it, it was something that was needed. So, Maria Elena, have you ever helped people apply for TPS? Because I think it's really important to understand just because you're eligible doesn't mean it's automatic. There's work to do here, right? Yes, there's for sure a process. Viva Wellness and Papagayo recently hosted a TPS clinic. We did a partnership with the University of Denver and some other organizations. This being said, just because you apply, that not necessarily means that you're approved. So we had to take in consideration that we have, at least in the state of Colorado, about 8,000 Venezuelans, they're eager to apply for TPS. And we have a shortage of lawyers. We're looking for volunteers. It costs money to apply, does it not? Absolutely. And yet these are folks who can't legally work and earn money that they would presumably use to pay for that process until they're granted it. Absolutely. Do I have that right? Yes. How many of the 8,000 might actually receive it in the end? You know, we don't know how many of the 8,000. We're hoping that at least 5,000 is kind of like a number that we're working with. But again, we just found out, as Marianena said, it does take a lot of time and it takes volunteers like lawyers. Additionally, like you said, I mean, it's a catch-22. You, you're not able to work. So how are you going to pay for that? So again, that's where we're trying to fundraise. We're trying to get some money. People ask, where do we donate? That is the idea. It's like, can you help us donate to kind of get those those funds together? So when time comes to apply, we can use those donations for that to work. And you direct people, I think, specifically to the fund that the state has. The newcomers fund. The newcomers fund. Yes. All right. Yes. Do you think that this could make a difference for homeless shelters, food banks, other social services that have been strained by large numbers of people arriving. Absolutely. There's no doubt we will be making this community independent. And at the same time, they will give back to their community. They're eager to work. They're eager to give back. Earlier, Maria Elena, you were talking about uh, folks from other nations. I'll say that TPS is open to people from countries that include Afghanistan, El Salvador, and Haiti but people arriving from Mauritania, which Rachel Estabrook mentioned in her report, are not eligible, for example. Uh, And again, also some Venezuelans have arrived here since July and will not be eligible. Denver estimates that it served almost 30,000 people who've arrived in the past year. Uh, That's the best estimate we have around the state because uh, other local governments don't keep track. Maria Elena, you mentioned the legal clinic to help with uh, applications for temporary protected status. What were those clinics like? We had to do one-on-one interviews. We had to go through the documents. We had to make sure that they have everything that they need to qualify for. And what, what sorts of questions are you asking in an interview like that? Well, 
<laughs> one of the most important, where you're here before July 31st. Uh, do you have a way of proving that? And yeah. we're it takes time to gather some information. This is time-consuming. Mm. Right. And then you had to make copies of those documents, get them ready for a proper lawyer and somebody there's prepared uh, to start the process. But even at to that point, do you need interpreters? You know? Ah. Yes. And translation. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I want to remember, we became, uh, if you want a passport photo, we can do that. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, so it has to bring the camera. We have, yes. we have learned how to do passport mm-hmm. photos. We have two passports. I mean, we, there's a lot of stuff that we need to do. We yeah. translate all the uh, birth certificates that you barely can read. I mean, it's a lot of work that you need to do. Birth certificates you can barely read. What, th- these were tucked in back pockets? Oh, gosh, um, they probably survived. Those that survived the trip, uh, back pockets, uh, you Usually is it, it like Ziplocs mm-hmm. because you, you you can get in water all the time. So they carry their papers, the important papers in Ziplocs, really, really tight as much as you can. You know, I, I noticed that people indeed could start applying for this almost two months ago. And in Colorado, the infrastructure to offer legal help seems like it's only just ramping up. What explains that lag, Yoli? It has taken a long time for the state, for the organizations to see what it needs to happen. Once we start, we're not going to stop for a long time. At least, what, six months? Mm. Yeah. That's how long you anticipate doing this uh, work? At least, absolutely. Mm-hmm. If people are granted legal status, you're hoping that it might be as many as 5,000 Venezuelans. They still need to find a job. How does that work? Well, that's part two of the process. We're hoping for our community members to start gathering together. We know that there is a job opportunities. And the good thing about this community is that many of them are professionals. Mm -hmm. We have nurses, teachers, name it. So these are well-educated community people. Is it easy enough for folks with those various source of expertise to plug in to those jobs here then when they find them? I believe, uh, because I'm native Venezuelan, <laughs> I believe that the opportunity in education gives you the ability to transform that into different aspects of life, mm-hmm. right? So let's say perhaps you're a nurse. You know, you might not be able to practice here, but then at least you know how to do customer service because you have the kindness and the turnness of dealing with people, right? And then you have the patience. So I think those are skills that you can transfer for to different kinds of jobs. And it is important to be flexible and to have a good understanding. How can I transfer the situation from a teacher to something that can be done here in the United States. Mm, I almost feel like I'm eavesdropping in on the conversations <laughs> you have with folks, which is you may not land the exact job you had back home, but here are the skills and how they can translate. Pretty much. Absolutely. Anything you'd add, Yoli? Absolutely. Actually, I mean, example, since December, we have hired various people that uh, have that capability. They were teachers in Venezuela, and they were able to help me this summer. You know, cooks, they're able to help prep the lunches for the children. So they're ready. They understand that. For migrants who are now outside of Metro Denver, and I mean, I'm thinking of the folks living under a bridge in Carbondale recently, 
The state's Office of New Americans is looking for local partners to offer legal services, help fill out applications for protected status. But it, it really seems to me that the federal government, the state government, I mean, really all levels of government are leaning hard on nonprofits to do this work. Is that a fair framing? I think as a nonprofit, our best interest, interest is for the community. We are more than happy to provide assistance and to be the hands of this. I don't know how to actually work, call it because it has been a combination of a lot of efforts. Uh, something that we have learned is that by coming together that we can go farther. We want to war for the community. We're here to help. I, I hear you saying that this chapter means there's a lot of cohesion among law, nonprofits that might not have existed Absolutely. before. Absolutely. Is it fair to say, Yoli, that the all levels of government are leaning disproportionately on you? It is. It's fair. But I mean, I think like Marilena says, you know, we are passionate about this work. We have grown tremendously. I think both organizations, more than 50%. So we have grown. We're bigger now than we were before in the ability to have that partnership. I mean, you only have so much capacity. Are there times you have to say, we can't help? Sorry? Absolutely. In, in, Absol what, in what arenas? We don't have the funding to help you, for example, part of your deposit or your rent. For housing? For housing, absolutely. And so sometimes we, many times now, because there's no much funding, we have to say no. And we're not able to help you. When in the past, when there was funding between December and August, we had some funding from the state for housing, special families with priority population. We were able to house a lot of people. Funding ended. And so then in September, we had to say no to a lot of the families that just arrived. And if folks gave to the fund that you mentioned earlier, would some of that money go to expanding the oh, availability of housing? Absolutely. Okay, and I, Every I see you penny. nodding furiously <laughs> yeah. there, Maria Elena. <laughs> All right, after a break, the final part of this conversation with two people who are helping recent migrants make a life in Colorado, how their own immigration journeys inform this work. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado is remembering the five people who were killed at Club Q a year ago. Dozens more survived that night and have been trying to figure out life in the aftermath. It took a lot of soul-searching to see if I wanted to go back into a bar environment. It's definitely been weirdly healing to go to work in a bar. Hear some of their individual stories on Colorado In-Depth, wherever you get podcasts. The U.S. does not mince words when it comes to conditions in Venezuela. That South American nation is, quote, suffering one of the worst humanitarian crises in the history of the Western Hemisphere, which is why the U.S. is offering thousands of Venezuelans who've come to Colorado the chance to apply for temporary legal status. Now, the final part of our conversation with two women who are weaving a safety net in real time. Yoli Casas of Vive Wellness, and Marielena Suarez of Organización Papagayo. Marielena, you mentioned that you are from Venezuela originally. Could I get each of you to reflect on 
what, if anything, in your own lives drives you to do this work? Well, first of all, I think it is compassion and understanding. As a Venezuelan, I was born there. I moved to the United States when I was 16, almost 17 years old. The Venezuela that I left was completely different than what it is now. The Venezuelan people are extremely kind and hard workers. And reflecting on what that was like when I was in Venezuela and what it is now, it touches your heart. And when you come to a different country, you had to learn about the culture itself, a different language, and how to navigate so many aspects of life. Which you did. Yes. And I'm extremely grateful for it. And as a migrant myself, I have learned that if I want to help other communities, we kind of have to let them know what it is to be in another country, what you need to accustom yourself, what it is that you need to learn, and take the amazing, valuable things that they gain from where they come from and help them to transfer those to a different community. What's something you want to make sure, maybe from your own experience, someone doesn't repeat? What's a mistake you made or something that you wish you'd have known? I think the importance and the opportunity about education. In Venezuela, because of the crisis, people had the tendency to give up and not to see a further future. And I understand that it is so hard when you migrate. But to the education piece... That's something that you encourage people to think about. Absolutely. Even though they might have lost sight of that for themselves. Absolutely. Uh huh. I believe the United States, it is a wonderful country. And we have learned that the Americans themselves have the biggest hearts. By providing education to these communities, you're able to kind of give them wings so they can fly, so they can become independent, they can give back, because that's something that they're aiming for. Again, that idea, as you have said several times, of self-sufficiency. Absolutely. And independence. All right, mm-hmm. Yoli from Vive Wellness, tell me about what in your background drives you to do work like this. Well, I think the same thing, you know, I left at 16. I came to the United States with the dreams of being a professional athlete and uh, coach and all those things. And uh, where did you come from? Maracaibo, Venezuela. Venezuela as yes, well. Yes, Venezuela as well. And uh, I left the 16th. Um, there was not a lot of money, so I had to come here and work. Did you get to pursue your athletics? I did. I was lucky enough that we came. I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and uh, where, where I lived almost 35 years. And I uh, was lucky that I got my education, pursued my athletic career, got to see the whole world. Athletics paid for my education, uh, and then I moved here to Star Vive to be able to help our you know, migrant community and the areas of health equity through movement. I believe a lot in movement. It took me to many ways, places. And tell me about the movement aspect of that for kids. What does that look like? It looks curious. like uh, learning how to move, physical, physical activity. One of the things we start is our, our, our brown and black kids cannot swim, 80, 60% of them. So we started, uh, Vive started teaching swimming to the children for free. What was your sport? <laughs> Marathon and triathlon. Marathon and triathlon. <laughs> Do, are you a good swimmer? I, 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 Venezuela, when I was little, is what my dad could only put us because swimming was free. So I learned to swim at four years ah, old. Okay. You yeah. were the exception. I, I was the exception. <laughs> okay. <for> <laughs> <laughs> and it took me swimming, t- 
I think swimming had a lot to do with where I am now and how passionate about I am about helping our community. Hmm. Before we go, I'd like to have each of you reflect on what you need. And I think specifically from government, you know, you might address the Biden administration if you'd like to address the Polis administration or, you know, even city government. What's missing right now? Marielena? This goes beyond political bodies. I think it's a call for awareness of the situations that go across the border. We have an extensive, not just here in Colorado, but all throughout the United States, a community that has gone through tremendous trauma. For those who understand the consequences of trauma, we'll be able to kind of foresee what is yet to come for mm. children's. This is going to have a very long tail, in other words. Yes. That, mm -hmm. that trauma will be part of a lifetime of an experience. Absolutely. And I think for us as advocates, we want to bring this across. What is happening across the border, it is unthinkable. It is inhumane. Like I mentioned earlier, we're not just talking about sexual abuse. We're talking about kidnapping, human trafficking, people being decapitated in front of children. So many things. And in order for future generations to see something different from what we have done in the past, we need to attend the needs. It's a long-term commitment, you're saying. Yoli? Do you want to address this question of what you most want? In addition to everything that Marielena said is, for me, it's like listening, talking to the Biden administration right now. And I want them to see and to think about all of the community, migrant community that's been around. It breaks my heart to see people that have been here for 40 years and they can't even go see their families. Their children have been born here. They haven't been addressed so for me, it's like we're adding more to the fire. It's like, it's like you're piling up more things. It's nothing being addressed. Please look at what's going on, everything. Look at the people that have been here for a long time. Let's not make the same mistake. They have given so much to this country. They've been part of it. Their children are from part of this. And so I'm speaking for all migrants in this country that needs to be addressed because we're just letting people in and piling out and not doing anything about it, not paying attention. But every person here is a human being, and they deserve that opportunity. So I'm asking for that. And that it not be piecemeal. Absolutely. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yoli Casas heads Vive Wellness. Marielena Suarez leads Organización Papagayo. That group is also connecting some migrants with mental health providers to address the trauma Suarez described. But she says one big shortage? Spanish-speaking counselors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. At the height of the gold rush, 5,000 people piled into a box canyon in southwest Colorado to strike it rich. And legend has it, as people made the long trek, they hollered, to hell you ride. The town was then called Columbia, but the Postal Service kept sending mail to Columbia, California. So folks in Colorado renamed this one Telluride. In truth, the name comes from a rare mineral of gold and tellurium. And in the early years, there was plenty of gold in the mountains surrounding Telluride. Soon, there was plenty of money. 
Telluride became the first city in the world with electric streetlights. And there was danger. Telluride is where Butch Cassidy first robbed a bank. Today, a ride to Telluride is faster than it once was. You can even book a flight. Pilots who use the one runway say it's one of the most beautiful and dangerous in America and are warned nothing you want to do tomorrow is worth risking lives today. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our warming planet is already affecting every corner of American life. Here in Colorado and across the West, rising temperatures endanger people's health, reduce snowpack and water supplies, and drive wildfires. Those are the conclusions of hundreds of scientists who contributed to the new National Climate Assessment. And we're going to take a closer look now with CPR Climate Editor Joe Wirtz. Howdy, Joe. Hey. What is the National Climate Assessment and how is it different from other climate reports? Right. So there are no new scientific findings in this report. It's basically a compilation of other findings. They call it a synthesis report. So it's a report of reports, basically. (laughs) But it's broken down in really useful ways for governments, and it's a really key document for the U.S. Now, why is this assessment key for the U.S.? Right. So establishing a scientific baseline gives the U.S. You know, a benchmark for policy. Uh, this assessment basically sets that tone and gives the sort of scientific baseline for policy. Um, it's basically the you know official U.S. scientific point of view on climate change and its effects on on, on American life. And uh, you know, the assessment is referred to when agencies and departments are writing rules and regulations. When you know, at either at the federal level or the local level, um, and it's also used in like court cases, litigation, that type of thing. Um, And the other key part of the National Climate Assessment is it's updated, right? So Congress in the 1990s mandated that uh, this report gets created and that it gets refreshed every five years. Oh, I imagine it has changed a lot since the 90s. You know, it really has. I was thinking about this the other day. This is the third National Climate Assessment that I've covered as a climate journalist, which means I'm super, super old. The first one I covered was in uh, 2014. um, And I was reading it and thinking about how much these reports had changed. And, you know, they're kind of roughly laid out the same. So I went back and and pulled all the reports and I I, I went back and read the first sentence from really the intro section from each of these reports, all five of the reports that have been released so far. And I want want to read a couple things to you. This is from the very first National Climate Assessment in 2001. This is the first sentence of the first section. Long-term observations confirm that our climate is now changing at a rapid rate. Now, compare that to the same opening line in the most recent, the 2023 report. The effects of human-caused climate change are already far-reaching and worsening across every region of the United States. In just two decades, yeah. That's right. So it's a really big change. So we go from this language that is basically serving to just convince a nation that the planet is warming to telling Americans that the effects of that warming are already happening. They're far-reaching and they're getting worse nearly everywhere. What is this assessment show for Colorado, Joe? So the official synopsis of the science for Colorado is not pretty. It's, you know, dangerously hot and dry in Colorado and throughout the region. That means less snowpack, less reliable water supplies, larger, more intense wildfires. And the effects of, of this warming are not equal. And that's a big part of how this assessment has changed. They're doing a much better job explaining how and why climate change will be felt worse by some people in America. And you say that focus on 
climate equity or inequality in right. this case. That's new for the assessment. Yeah, it really has. As this uh, assessment has evolved, they've added more and more from other scientific, you know, and research disciplines, more social science, more history, more health impacts. And, you know, it gives us really good insight. So we know that like frontline workers in Colorado and Western states, like agricultural workers, you know, they're going to feel the impact of increased temperatures first and hardest, more hospitalizations and things like that. And that's reflected in the, in the kind of extra uh, science and social science that we get in the new reports. And Chris, that affects all of us. That affects what we eat. Um, adding that economic, like health, those other layers, that's really key. It is. It gives us a much, much richer and fuller picture of the effects of climate change and how people can respond and react. You know, and the science in the report helps us understand how these hotter temperatures are driving things like droughts and how those things are felt in communities that don't have reliable water sources, for example, like indigenous tribes. And so, you know, that extra social science dimension really, really adds a lot there. This federal report comes just before the UN Climate Conference, known as COP28 this time. It starts in Dubai Thursday. President Biden not going to be there in person, correct? Yeah, that's at least the expectation. It's obviously a, a busy time uh, in the world with the conflict in, in Israel and Gaza. Uh, the U.S., you know, is sending top climate envoys along with 200 other countries. And, you know, we could see some new agreements and announcements on things like curbing methane. Methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. It's shorter lived in the atmosphere, but um, it's thought to be maybe easier to rein in. And if we did that, we could maybe uh, buy ourselves some time uh, to tackle um, the bigger, more pernicious uh, carbon problem. So, yeah, Biden not expected to be there. You know, that absence will certainly be is already being taken uh, by some as a uh, signal, you know, that uh, Biden and the administration aren't taking climate change uh, seriously enough and aren't acting quickly enough. And not that the president of the United States needs my defense, but uh, he has been at the, the last two. You've reported that one of the most public effects of warming is extreme weather. Does this assessment touch on that? Yeah, it really does. This, you know, the science in the assessment really drives home, you know, how much these record temperatures are creating extreme and, you know, often dangerous weather. One example cited in the assessment is billion-dollar disasters. We used to get one of these every four months on average. Now we're getting one basically every three weeks. That means more things like those atmospheric rivers we saw that were pummeling California last year, big floods. And one report author I talked about actually said that the uptick in extreme weather might actually have a silver lining. Uh, want to explain that? <laughs> well, so extreme weather is unignorable, you know, basically. Heat waves, wildfires, droughts, floods, these are radically affecting folks right now. It's been so bad and so public that people are really living with the effects. They're talking about climate change. It's really on people's minds in a way that many scientists feel is new. So you combine that you know, unprecedented public attention with billions of dollars in new federal investment. This is the most ever for renewable energy climate response efforts. Scientists are hopeful that the attention and this massive federal investment is a recipe for action. Joe, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. Joe Wirtz leads CPR's climate and environment team. And he writes a weekly newsletter. You can subscribe at CPR.org slash climate weekly. Natural wonders blanket the western slope, book cliffs, mesas, alpine lakes. 
but a listener wondered something pretty fundamental, yet not obvious. Where exactly is the Western Slope? CPR's Stina Sieg, who's based there, reports on some awfully squishy boundaries. Have you ever skied at Steamboat or taken the train to Glenwood Springs or watched the sheepdog trials in Meeker? If so, you've been to the Western Slope. Or have you? Grand Junction resident Scott Braden has some questions. Is it Western Slope or West Slope? And really, what does that even mean? Well, what is the extent of the Western Slope? How far does it go out? What are its boundaries? Cut and dry, right? So let's ask a geography expert. My name is Dara Seidel. I'm associate professor of GIS at Colorado Mountain College. Geographic Information System. Mapping. So can Seidel say where the borders of the western slope, or maybe its west slope, lie? I would love to tell you yes, but as a geographer, I would have to tell you no. There is no definitive answer. Okay, two words might be shouting inside your head right now. Continental divide. You may have heard, like I have, that the western slope is everything west of that divide to the Utah border. I think if we take a really strong physical geography take, then yes. That's what the state demography office says, too. But Seidel and the state agree that there's actually nothing official about what makes the western slope the western slope. I do feel that it's more about the emotional sense. And so you want to be a part of a specific community. You take pride in being part of of one region or another. In that way, the public's definition of the western slope means just as much as an expert's. So we asked you, where do you think the Western Slope is? Hello, this is Wendy Vidalock. I was always told that anything this side of Breckenridge or Summit County was part of the Western Slope, and it seems to be a fairly nebulous designation. Hi, this is Ryan. I live on the Front Range. When I hear Western Slope, I see the Grand Valley. It's the peach orchards and hiking the monument and the view of the book cliffs. It's magical. Many of you echoed David Fischel of Grand Junction. To me, Western Slope is anything west of the Continental Divide. But Aspen resident Aidan Wynn thinks the Western Slope stops way before the Utah border. Out till probably like Rifle, maybe Battle Mesa. And Roger Boris of Centennial got even more specific about the dividing line. Buffalo Pass to Rabbit Ears Pass, then it cuts to Gore Pass, Vail Pass, Tennessee Pass. Monarch Pass, Marshall Pass, North Pass, Spring Creek Pass, Wolf Creek Pass, and Cumbrous Pass at the southern border. But there's one thing most of you agree on, including Jeremy Simon, who used to live in Carbondale. It's definitely the western slope. There's no way it's the west slope. With only a few dissenting opinions. This is Ellis calling from Hotchkiss, and it's the best slope. And Sunset Slope might be my favorite term, but it's fallen out of favor over the past century, says Alex Finkelstein, who teaches history at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. As for Scott Braden, who asked the original questions, he sees the Western Slope as something beyond the Rocky Mountains. The John Denver maybe didn't sing about that is much more a province of sagebrush and cowboys and, and, and red rock mesas and, and, and maybe not so much, you know, snow and skiing. And he's right. 
just like everyone who contributed to this piece is, just like you are. Because it turns out that the only real boundaries of the Western Slope are the ones that live in your heart. On the Best Slope, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. See an interactive map of the Western Slope's possible boundaries at CPR.org. That's where you can also ask your own question through Colorado Wonders, and we might just answer it. Finally today, we invite you to take part in a current Colorado tradition that's based on a vintage TV show. At the holidays, I delight in a rather campy Judy Garland special. It features her daughter Liza Minnelli and her one-time collaborator Mel Torme. Chestnuts roasting on an old As your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. So, eight years ago, we created the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. A nod to this 1963 special. It's our biggest show of the year with music and comedy and memories. And you're invited to the recording the evening of December 7th at Denver's Central Presbyterian Church. Limited tickets remain at CPR.org holiday. This is a chance to see radio in the making, to be in the company of other public radio fans, and to shake off any seasonal blues. Again, claim your seats at cpr.org slash holiday. They're some of the most affordable tickets in town to boot. Really know how to fly. And so I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from 1 to 92. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. So we have a go at some old English, shall we?